Welcome to the West Side Audio Message Podcast. We hope you enjoy today's message. And if you're looking for more ways to connect with West Side Assembly of God, feel free to check us out at www.westsideag.org. You'll find all the information about our service times, upcoming events, and opportunities for you to plug in and get connected with West Side Assembly of God. Additionally, you'll find a complete online archive of all of the previous and current messages absolutely free of charge. We hope you are encouraged by this week's message, and thanks again for downloading the West Side Audio Message Podcast. Paul wrote to Timothy two letters, and Paul wanted to pour his life into Timothy. He didn't want his ministry to die with him. He had invested way too much in it. And he had also gone through a bushel load of, of protégés, potentials. But he zeroed in on Timothy. Timothy had what Paul was looking for. And whatever Paul had learned in his life, he wanted Timothy to be able to grab a hold of that and continue so the ministry, as Paul understood it, would continue on for another generation. I want to go back to a speech in 1960 by the newly elected president. At his inauguration, John F. Kennedy, at 43 years old, became the youngest person to ever be elected president of the United States. In our congregation here today, we have a sampling of people who were here when that happened. Others of you, you weren't here yet. For those of you that are here, you can maybe reflect back on this time if you remember that. And those who are not, you're going to get a little history lesson today. 43 years old. Peggy Noonan, today a famous journalist and author, recalls that she was only 10 years old at that time. And she says, thinking to herself... I didn't know anybody could be elected president of the United States without gray hair. She jokingly said, I thought it must have been a part of the Constitution. JFK, interestingly enough, represented the very first person born in the 20th century to serve as president. It was a new generation. And him, 43 years old, and his 31-year-old wife and their little toddlers made this incredibly contrasting presence in the White House, especially when viewed against the aging Eisenhowers who were stepping down. And this bright-eyed, energetic young politician with a full shock of sandy hair took the podium at his inauguration And he proclaimed these words to the world. Let the word go forth from this time and place to friend and foe alike that the torch has been passed to a new generation of Americans born in this century. Tempered by war and disciplined by a hard and bitter peace, proud of our ancient heritage and unwilling to witness or permit the slow undoing of those human rights to which this nation has always been committed. And to which we are committed today at home and around the world. Let every nation know, whether it wishes us well or ill, that we shall pay any price, bear any burden, meet any hardship, 
support any friend, and oppose any foe to assure the survival and the success of liberty. Now, those were powerful words, especially coming from a young man, a new generation, who stood and pledged to hold nothing back in order to respect and preserve that which had been handed to him. Now, in a similar sense, the Apostle Paul is concerned about passing the ministry on. Anytime you fought so hard to make progress and you hand the project off to somebody else, you don't want to see the project fall apart, whether that be the United States of America or whether it be Paul's ministry. When we take our hands entirely off, and put it in the hands of another generation. As we do here at Westside, we who are handing this ministry off to another generation want to know that our years of labor have not been in vain. We want to know we are handing this to young people who are not going to monkey with the doctrines, who are not going to compromise the Word, who are not going to sweep Pentecost under the rug as an artifact of yesteryear, who are going to hold to the values and the principles of the Bible and not compromise to accommodate this world and its mentality. We want to know when we hand this to you that you will have the same fervor and and zeal for God that led the people to plant this church and to build these facilities and to dedicate their lives and and their fortunes and their incomes to God. We want that peace of mind that the handoff will be successful and the church will live on under the banner of Westside at least. But it's a nervous thing to hand it off, isn't it? We think we're doing a good job and we're not so sure that those we hand it to will. And Paul felt like that in trying to find somebody to continue his ministry. We want to know that the confidence of the integrity of the gospel message will not suffer at the hands of modernists. We want to know it will not deteriorate by the efforts of theological revisionists. We want to know that it will not be diluted by social conformists. We hand you a very priceless and precious gift that has been paid for the blood, sweat, and tears of devoted people before you. We charge you to take care of it. And if you don't, we're going to come back from the dead and haunt you. Paul knows that one of the biggest threats to the continuing ministry, one of the biggest threats to the integrity of the gospel, is for good people just to merely surrender and to give up. And like JFK, they may start with the very best of intentions. But if there's no follow-through, it's a beautiful speech. That's a, that's a spine-tingling speech. Part of the same speech where he famously said, Ask not what your country can do for you, but ask what you can do for your country. And the whole speech just resonated with words that would live on for many generations to come. It sounds good. 
It's encouraging. But the question is, can you do it? Will you compromise somewhere along the way? Will you say the right things until you receive the baton and do something else? Paul speaks to Timothy why he should not give up, why he should not compromise. We're tempted to quit. We, We are surrounded by quitters. We're tempted to quit when it seems our efforts aren't producing measurable results. And we just want to give up. We're tempted to quit when it seems sometimes like we're outnumbered and the popular opinion is against us. We're tempted to quit when we feel abandoned by others who once stood beside us shoulder to shoulder but no longer stand with us. We're tempted to quit when the enemy starts putting out propaganda and spreading the false rumors that the war is over, he's won. You might as well just quit and go home. We're tempted to quit when we struggle against so many obstacles and barriers in just our simple efforts to do the works of the Lord. And the constant pressure of trying to do right and fighting the battles like the men who built the wall in the Old Testament. It is recorded that they labored with a trowel in one hand and a sword in the other. They had to build and battle at the same time, and it becomes wearisome. In this first chapter of Second Timothy, Paul puts together five points why Timothy should never consider quitting his service to the Lord. I want the Holy Spirit to make that application to you today as we go over what Paul shared with Timothy. Paul knew it was going to be difficult. It was difficult for him. Paul knew the kind of challenges that Timothy would face. But he passionately urges Timothy. The first incentive that he tells Timothy Here's why you should not quit. Number one, because you have to remember the commitment that you made to the Lord. First, Second Timothy chapter 1, verse 5 says, I remember your genuine faith, for you share the faith that first filled your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice. And I know that the same faith continues strong in you. And this is why I remind you to fan into flames the spiritual gift God gave you when I laid hands on you. There was a point in Timothy's life when he made a commitment. There is a point in your life, most likely, in your relationship with God when you made a commitment to Him. Some of you came to God because you were cornered. And with no other options you could find, you decided, I might as well try God. I've tried everything else. You came at a time when there was a mess in your life and you couldn't straighten it out and you wanted God to help. And the chances are huge that at that point you promised God things. You were so desperate. God, if you'll get me out of this, what did you promise him? Now, it didn't have to be that desperate. Some of you just came to the Lord suddenly realizing the path of salvation. You weren't particularly wicked people. You were just on the wrong path. 
when you found the joy of, of salvation in Jesus Christ, in, in your ecstasy, in your joy, you just begin to promise him things. Lord, this is so good, I'm going to love you and serve you forever. Some of you boldly told God, I'll do anything. Now that I understand what you did for me, I'll do anything for you, God. I'll go anywhere you call me. I'll do anything you ask me to do. Now, just in this congregation here today, we've got a lot of promises that have been made. And Timothy made a commitment. Having that strong faith that was passed down from his grandmother to his mother, to Timothy. Somewhere along the line, Timothy decided that serving the Lord in ministry would be the right thing for him to do. And he made a commitment. And they memorialized that commitment by the presbytery laying their hands on Timothy. And a gift being given to Timothy at that time that Paul reminds him, Timothy, you remember when you made that commitment to the Lord. And no doubt they talked about what that commitment would mean. When I was ordained, they did the same thing. In that ordination service, as they handed us our Bible and told us what it meant, what step we were taking. And they charged us, preach the word without fear and do it without favor. It was all because I had made a commitment and am solemnized at that moment. And Paul says to Timothy, here's why you shouldn't quit, because you made a promise. But we're a nation of quitters. We in Christianity know the value of not quitting. We have hymns that for years contained many of those themes about our dedication. Remember the old hymn books where they have the songs listed alphabetically then you could go over to another index where they were listed topically remember that so if you wanted a sunday for missions you could go over to the missions and look up the songs that fit that if you wanted songs about consecration and commitment you go to that list and would tell you songs and we had many of them in there i surrender all all to thee my blessed savior We have draw me nearer that says consecrate me now to thy service, Lord, by the power of grace divine. Let my soul look up with a steadfast hope and my will be lost in thine. And we sang it and we promised. We would sing take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. We would sing give of your best to the master. We would sing if Jesus, Jesus goes with me, I'll go anywhere. We sing, lead me, Lord, I'll follow. We had such a, a mentality about consecration to the Lord. We sang and reminded ourselves and our friends every Sunday, don't quit. We have come to reconsecrate ourselves to the Lord today. We're not giving up. It permeated our, our theology and our worship. So Timothy has this special moment of commitment And Paul reminds him, you made a promise. So now I've accused you of having made a promise. And I have to ask you, do you remember the promise you made to God? 
Are you going to write that off as just some emotional offering that you had because you were so happy at the moment, but you're no longer that happy? Do you remember when you told him that you would serve him any way that he asked you to serve him? Do you remember when you offered your talents and your life and your resources to God to use any way he desired? Do you remember when you were in deep trouble and you said, God, get me out of this. I'll do anything for you, but you haven't done it yet. Do you remember when you knelt at the altar and you gave it all to God and said, Lord, my life, my family, my children, they're all yours. But those prayers seem to fade whenever the trials come, don't they? And they say, Lord, don't take my money from me. Don't take my job from me. Don't take my children from me. Did you mean it? Or are you trying to scam God? Was it really a promise? Or something you're just going to conveniently forget? Timothy, you promised. You cannot give up. I saw you promise. I laid my hands on you to honor that promise. One of the promises that many of us here today have made has been the marriage vow. I promise, I promise in sickness and in health, for richer, for poorer, till death do us part. And of course, the record of divorces shows that those are meaningless words all too often. Number two, he tells Timothy, stir the gift. You made this promise. A gift was given to you. We don't know what that gift was. We can speculate. But he tells him, stir it up. And the language used there that you probably, if you've studied this and been in Sunday school class, heard some, you probably know it refers to stirring up a fire. That is just nothing but embers. And the Ashes have covered the coals, and they're smothering it. In order to get the fire going, you've got to stir it up and knock the ashes off and gather them together so they can work together and produce enough heat to burst it into flame again and rekindle it. Stir up the gift. Whatever God has blessed us with, whatever he has graced us with, if we're not careful, it can deteriorate. This applies to volunteers. God, when he calls you, he, pro- he equips you. Wherever he guides, he provides. He never requires anything of us without providing the proper tools and the means to accomplish what he's asking us to do. We may want swords and weapons, and he may give us kitchenware and trumpets but he'll give us what we need to get the job done. And if we didn't have some Damascus Road experience, I didn't have a Damascus Road experience. We answer the call because the call has gone out and broadcast. It's like an ad that's been taken out in the newspaper looking for workers. Like an ad has gone out over the television, over the radio, looking for workers. And you answer 
the call. And the call's going out. And who will answer? Who will sign up? Like the heavenly one adds, looking for laborers in the harvest field. That's what it means to answer a call. Not just to say, I wait, well, wait until God knocks me down on the road. And I have visions nobody else can see and hear voices nobody else can hear. Then I'll know that God wants me to do something. You haven't been reading your Bible. He's calling. Who will answer the call? And once you're called, you be equipped. But don't you let that gift go to seed. Stir it up. Timothy, you made a promise. The second thing he tells Timothy, why he should not quit, is he says, I want you to take in consideration the investment that's already been made in you. Paul had invested in him. And it was too late in Paul's life for him to start over investing in somebody else. He had put all his investment in Timothy. God had already invested in Timothy. There's been an investment in you. Verse 7 says, God has not given us the spirit of fear and timidity, but of power and love. And if you have the King James Version here today, it says sound mind. And oh, have we preached a lot of sermons on sound mind. But if you have another version, you probably don't have sound mind there. NIV says power, love, and self-discipline, which is a little bit closer to what Really, the language says. So let's forget sound mind for this morning. And let's dwell on the, self, on the discipline part of this. These are things God invests. This is a part of the package when you get saved. Are you saved today? God has given to you not the spirit of fear. If you have a spirit of fear, you didn't get it from God. So guess where else you got it? But God has invested in you, every born-again Christian is given the power of, the, the spirit of power, the spirit of love, and the spirit of discipline. Now these are available. Are you using them? They are yours. They're a part of your arsenal. We came into these impressive endowments. Let me start first as I deal with these very quickly. I could make a whole sermon out of them, but I won't even try this morning. Give us the spirit of power. It's a general term that covers a broad range. You can have power like authority. You can have power that is enablement. You can have power that is influence. You can have power that is anchored in the spirit of God that causes miraculous things to happen around you, in you, through you. Weak, struggling, faltering, powerless, defeated Christians have a serious defect going on because you've been given the spirit of power and you can't live your life in a powerless state and be connected to the gifts that God has given you. There's a defect. There's a disconnect going on. You have been given the spirit of power. You've got to get a hold of that today. It can change. This is life-changing. If you have this, if you're born again, you have the spirit of power, 
Yet you're not using that. That's about as effective as getting out your power lawnmower and running it all over yard and your yard and trying to cut your grass but never starting the engine. It's like starting your car, and it's running, but you never put it in gear. You're not going anywhere. You're just burning gas. And that's what it is with the people who are not walking in the power of the Spirit because you've been given the power. You're just not getting things in gear. You're not making it work for your benefit. Have you not learned that he that is in you is greater than he that is in the world. We have been given the spirit of power. We've been given the spirit of love. Now, love is complicated. Don't even look for me to scratch the surface of the doctrine of love this morning. He gives us the ability to love like God loves us. He's not stating that here we are given love, even though we are, but that's another matter. He says we're given the spirit of love of love the implication is we are equipped with the ability to now under his direction and his empowerment to be able to love like we could not love before we became connected to god we're incapable of loving like god expects us to love or even like god loves us until we get connected to the spirit of love that has been given to us now i'm going to say this again Love is complicated. Keep that in mind. The Greek text, exegetical commentary, which I'm not a Greek expert, but it takes those words that look like Greek to me and defines them accurately on how they should be brought over into the English. And this love is defined as self-abandonment. You like that? It'll sacrifice reputation, security, and everything that belongs to the self just for the betterment of others. That's love, but it's way more complicated than that. How many of you have read Dr. Gary Chapman's book, The Five Love Languages? Raise your hands. See, there's a lot of you that have not raised your hands. And he did us a, a, a big favor by defining Five languages that we speak that express love. Or five languages that we understand when somebody else does that, that we understand as love. Here's the problem, is we don't all speak the same language. And it becomes particularly difficult when husband and wife don't speak the same language. So you've, you've got this, these five love languages And they are gifts, time, words of affirmation, acts of service, and physical touch. Now, just ask yourself, which of those things expresses love to you more than anything else? Do gifts really, does that make, does that do it for you? What about quality time with the one you love? Is that a good expression of love? What if you want quality time and all you're getting is gifts? Because his love language is gifts. And all you want to do is be around him all the time. And he's saying, give me some space. If you want to love me, give me something. 
Give me a bass boat. Give me a, a rifle. Give me gifts. You know, when men, when they're talking, you have to understand we've got a whole different mentality. One man could brag to another, my wife sure loves me, but how do you know? Because she gave me a brand new shotgun. She loves me. You never hear a man saying, I know my wife loves me. She hangs on my coattail everywhere I go. That, he doesn't understand that as an expression of love, but she does. So she thinks... So you see how complicated, when you've got five gifts and you've got these other languages being spoken, may I go back and say, love's complicated. Knowing the deepest need of your mate and being able to express that to them is the way you truly, successfully express love so they understand it. To further demonstrate how complicated love is, you go to the 13th chapter of 1 Corinthians, the love chapter, and Paul starts off the chapter by saying, if, no matter what I do, no matter what I accomplish, no matter how spiritual I am, if I don't have love, it's nothing. All the other things are meaningless without being rooted in love. And then he goes into this little description of love that is so powerful, starting in the fourth verse, he says, and you might want to test yourself as I go down the list, love is patient and kind. Love is not jealous or boastful or proud. Love is not rude. It does not demand its own way. It's not irritable. It keeps no record of being wronged. It does not rejoice about injustice, but it rejoices whenever truth wins out. Love never gives up. Love, love never loses faith. Love is always hopeful and endures through every circumstance. Just those short four scripture verses gives us a peek into what godly biblical love is that makes most of us stand there and say, I am a complete failure. And we go down the list. Are you impatient with your family and your friends? That's not love. Are you rude to those that are closest to you, but you're the prince of kindness and respect to everybody else? That's, that's not love. Are you self-centered and it's all about you? That's not love. Are you irritable? It's not love. Because we realize this passage that has God's definition of love leaves us falling so very short of what he expects of us. And we say, how can I do this? You've been given the spirit of love to help you attain these things. And then he said, God gave you the spirit of discipline. And I just want to get quickly down to the point here that even though King James said sound mind, you're going to have to dismiss that. That's taking you the wrong direction on what Paul is really saying to Timothy. When he said, God has given you the spirit, and NIV says self-discipline. I believe NLT probably says self-discipline. Those translators are interpreting discipline as being the power to be able to keep yourself in line. Well, that's good, because I don't think that that's, that's wrong, but that's not what Paul said. When he said the power of discipline, he said basically it could better be translated, most likely correction or admonishment. He gave you the authority, and this makes sense as he's telling Timothy, 
that this is one of the reasons you don't quit. You've been invested heavily in. God invested in you these tools. And one of those things he invested in you was the ability to confront error. Correct. Admonish. And that's not easy to do. I can tell you as a pastor, it's not easy to do. I can tell you whenever there's somebody in the church, in the congregation, that is in the wrong and causing trouble in the church, it's difficult to confront those people and tell them that they're wrong. To correct them, to try and put them on the right path. Because two things likely will happen. One is you'll probably make them angry because a lot of people don't receive correction well. They're very embarrassed, and after they're embarrassed, they're angry. So you go to them and you say, I need to talk to you. This behavior is not pleasing the Lord, and they get defensive. The second thing that happens is because you people, the rest of you, are not privy to what goes on behind closed doors as the pastor talks to somebody. The only version that comes out is their version. And when they spread their version, how mean I was, then the church gets divided and people become partisan and they take up somebody else's cause and eventually people leave. I know it. I've seen it happen. It's happened in the years I've been here at Westside when you deal with somebody and the version that comes out and hits the telephone line is not at all what happened. I'm telling you with integrity as your pastor, it's not what happened. But it's why people left because they thought it happened this way. And I know you're just hankering to know the truth, but I'm not going to tell you the details. I'm just telling you that's the way it is. God gives us the spirit to correct error gives us the courage and Timothy was going to need that because Paul had to confront people he had to confront false teachers he had to confront churches that were in error in their doctrine and in their function and he's passing on to Timothy he said Timothy you can't quit God's invested in you tools that the church needs Christianity needs they need people who are willing to stand up and speak the truth when falsehood is being propagated they need people who are willing to correct when people are in error. If we ever lose that in the church, the church will not survive another generation. These three things, the spirit of power, the spirit of love, and the spirit of discipline. Standard equipment for every one of you. Are you really plugged into that? The third thing that Paul tells Timothy, here's the reason you shouldn't quit, Timothy, because there is no shame in sharing the gospel. There is no shame in working for God. And I think Paul is alluding to the people who might quit because they feel embarrassed or ashamed. Because don't, don't you know that the enemy tries to work through people to shame you, to embarrass you? Sometimes it's difficult to be a witness. Sometimes it's difficult to let your light shine whenever you're in the midst of gross darkness sometimes it's difficult for you to stand up and proclaim to everybody else i am i the only christian here it can be intimidating can't it it can keep you from witnessing the shame the reproach the embarrassment the humiliation the hesitation i don't want to be the only one well you might be 
Paul tells Timothy, there's nothing to be ashamed of. That's the reason you've got to keep going. Because the only shame that comes, comes at the hands of people working in behalf of the enemy and the powers of hell that are trying to discourage you. But there is no shame in serving God. There is no shame in sharing the gospel. There's probably people here today that you might be a Christian in your family, but most of your family, if not all of the rest of your family, are not Christians. And have they not tried to shame you? Have they not tried to humiliate you? Have they not tried to change your course by saying, what are you doing? You're wasting your time. Why would anybody want to give up their Sundays to go to church? Why would anybody want to give up part of their income to tithe? You deserve that money. You work for it. Why would anybody? They try to shame you. And that's part of the tools of hell to do that. Even today, the atheists who are organizing and moving against Christianity uh, with, with more vigor than ever in the, in the history of, of our country and attacking Christianity, they're trying to shame people. Shame them for being so stupid that they believe in these fairy tales. They're trying to shame them for believing in Jesus Christ. So we have to nail this down today. It doesn't make any difference if you're in the minority or not. There is no shame in serving God. You have to keep going. Paul says, never be ashamed to tell others about our Lord. And Paul said, don't be ashamed of me either. Because, see, he was in jail. And whenever you have to explain to others that your mentor, the man you're following, is a con. He's a convict. He's been in and out of prison. He's got this record. But I love him. I'm following him. And Paul lost a lot of followers because his... His life was checkered like that. He had a record. And Paul says to Timothy, don't you be ashamed of working for God and don't be ashamed of me. I'm in prison, but I'm in prison for God. With the strength God gives you, be ready to suffer with me for the sake of the good news. For God saved us and called us to live a holy life. He did this not because we deserved it, but because... That was his plan from the beginning of time, to show us his grace through Jesus Christ. And now, he made all this plain to us by the appearing of Jesus Christ, our Savior. He broke the power of death and illuminated the way of life and immortality through the good news. And God chose me to be a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher of the good news. Don't be ashamed of your faith. Don't be ashamed of Jesus Christ. Don't be ashamed to live by your godly principles when nobody around will support you. It was much easier to be a Christian in the United States of America 50 years ago. Much easier than it is today. Christianity was not being attacked like it is today. People were not being shamed and humiliated. Christians were not being slandered like they are today. But our nation is changing. And the percentage of Christians in the United States is sliding. There's this bias and this resentment building against Christianity here in our country. I'm living through the transition. I've been living through a time when people, everybody I knew called themselves a Christian. They didn't all live maybe as dedicated as I thought they ought to. But they still 
believed there was a God and they still went to church and they were still sympathetic to the Bible as the Word of God. They understood those things. And I've lived through the transition where now that's not so common anymore. And we're slipping from being the majority in this country to being the persecuted minority. It's not easy. Are you going to quit because it's not popular anymore? You're going to quit because you're persecuted for what you believe in? The fourth thing that Paul tells Timothy, you can't quit. And here's why. Because I did it. And you can too. Now, it's always helpful to know somebody else has gone through what you're about to go through or are going through. That encourages me. I'm discouraged if I think I'm the first one to have to go through this and I have to be the example. But if I can find somebody else that's been through it and they've survived, they've thrived, they were victorious, I know it's possible then. Paul says, that's why I'm suffering here in prison. I'm not ashamed of it. And then the famous passage that if you were the King James variety, it would say, I know whom I have believed. And I'm persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. And the version I have here today changes that a little bit, but it says essentially the same. It says, I know the one whom I have trusted. I'm sure he is able to guard that which I have entrusted to him until the day of his return. So, to Timothy, he says, hold on to the pattern of wholesome teaching you learned from me, a pattern shaped by the faith and love that you have in Christ Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit who lives within us. Carefully guard the precious truth that has been entrusted to you. Don't give up, Timothy. I've done it. I've been there. I've been through the perils. I've been through the troubles. I've been through the trials, and I'm still serving God. Don't give up, Timothy. You can do this. It's humanly possible. I know you can. So you see, for those people that say, I cannot serve the Lord, it's too difficult. There's too many people that have been under far harsher conditions than you have, and they've made it. If you're giving up, it's not because you can't. It's because you choose not to. Too many have made it. And the secret, the reason we can The thing that enables us to keep going when it seems like we cannot is simply wrapped up in this. How can I do it? Paul says, how, people may ask, can I suffer in prison for the work I'm doing and still keep going because I know who I have believed in. I'm persuaded he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day when he's soon to return. That's how we do it. We find that strength and encouragement of knowing others have gone through the same trials we're going through. We draw strength from the testimony of survivors. Hell would isolate us and have us think despairing thoughts like Elijah. This legendary hero of the faith performed miracles and single-handedly defeated entire armies. And he finds him in this one vulnerable moment of discouragement when he runs to the wilderness, finds a pitiful tree to sit underneath, and he lays there and says, God, just kill me! And he says, Lord, I've tried to do your work. And Israel has not tried. They're backsliding. 
they've broken every one of your commandments. I'm trying to live for you. They are not. As a matter of fact, God, I am the only one left in the kingdom that loves you. Now, that's a pretty heady prayer. That's the kind that probably all of us have prayed from time to time. When we've gone through the worst, we pray these Elijah prayers. Lord, why am I going through this? Can't you see I'm the only one that's trying to serve you? And I see my neighbors that are not trying to serve you, and they're not having these problems. And I see from my friends at church that are not near as holy as I am, and they're not going through these troubles. I've been faithful, Lord. And the reason we pray like that, like Elijah, is because, number one, it makes us feel pretty special before God to suggest to him that here I am, Lord. I'm the lone survivor of Christianity. The whole world is going to hell but me. And here I am. We think we're all alone. And the second reason we pray like that is because we're guilty of throwing pity parties every time we have a chance. And when we throw pity parties, we speak in hyperboles. We speak in superlatives. So in this pity party, have you ever noticed when people really get to feeling down in the Lord, then they start saying in this depressed state, Lord, everybody is against me. Nobody appreciates me. Lord, you never answer my prayers. Lord, you always answer everybody else's prayers. Hear all these superlatives? Why does everybody have it better than me? I mean, we can never moderate our prayers and our complaints to God and say, sometimes, Lord, I don't feel like. And there's some people. It's always everybody, nobody. It's always so extreme. Why do the worst things always happen to me? Not sometimes. Not once in a while. Because we love our pity parties. And that's what Elijah did. And then God came to Elijah. God who knows more than I know, knows more than you know. He came down and he said, Elijah, I know it looks bleak. But I happen to know, I've taken head count. And somewhere out there, unbeknownst to you, I find 7,000 people who have not bowed their knee to Baal. You know, it seems like you're alone, but you're not alone. 7,000 that were just like Elijah. They weren't happy with the government. They weren't happy with the king. They weren't happy with, with the idolatry, the backslide. 7,000 meeting in their homes somewhere and saying, God, I don't like what's going on around here. And Elijah couldn't see it for his own blindness. Paul expects nothing of Timothy that he himself has not already been through. He suffered for his faith, but he did not quit. He never gave up. He was thoroughly qualified to put himself forth as an example to Timothy. He said, don't give up on God. Don't be ashamed of him. Don't be ashamed of me. Don't give up on me. I've made it. You can make it too. Be faithful. Be steady. Paul said, I've set the example. The final thing is, quitting is easy. But God is not looking for quitters. He's looking for that rare breed 
that are faithful and devoted servants. And he says in the 15th verse, heart-tugging verse, if you think about this for a while, it just breaks your heart. He says, as you know, everyone from the province of Asia has deserted me. Maybe a little hyperbole there. But then he mentions two people. We don't know Phagellus. We don't know Hermogenes. But the fact that he mentioned them tells us that he and Timothy knew these two people, that both of them were going to be shocked at the revelation that, as he tells Timothy, Timothy, the two people that I thought never would have turned their back on me, Phagellus, Hermogenes, even they have forsaken me. They were examples of those he would have never thought, but they did. Which leaves only Timothy. His, his words to Timothy are, Timothy, I had a lot of followers. I had a lot of believers. But I don't have anybody left but you. And that's the reason you can't quit. Because if you quit, this ministry of mine is going to die. All the work I've done is going to die. If I don't raise up another warrior with my spirit and my dedication to God... Everything I've done for the Lord is just going to go down the tubes. I don't have another follower in Asia. And the two that I thought I could depend on, I can't depend on them. Timothy, quitting's easy, but you can't be a quitter. You've got to remain steadfast. And as John F. Kennedy said in his speech, and now the torch is passed, we see Paul passing the torch to another generation and hands it to Timothy and says, don't quit. Don't give up. There's too many reasons that you cannot quit. Be faithful to the end. Timothy, pastor at the church of Ephesus, surrounded by wickedness, debauchery and evil, paganism, And it is said that as they were having one of their filthy, evil parades where all manner of sin and vileness was displayed, that Timothy went out with the spirit of correction into the midst of this. And as the pastor in that town and the pastor of that church went out and began to confront these people, and he was clubbed to death, in the streets of the city he pastored. Because Paul had convinced him, you can't give up. If you die trying to resist, you die. But don't you quit. The easiest thing to do, people, is to quit. People quit all the time. They quit their jobs. They quit their diets. They quit their marriages. They quit their exercise program. They quit church. They quit God. It's easy to quit. You can do it. It's easy. Every one of you here today, you have an option of quitting today. You can do that. But God's looking for some people who will stand out and distinguish themselves and keep on going when everybody else quits. Do you want to be that special person for God? Just a handful compared to the number of people who start and quit. Just a handful are going to press forward to the end. I want to be in that special unit. I want to be on that team, the ones that didn't quit. Bow your heads.